Thanks for joining us at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations, reaching around the world with our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. You can partner with us by sharing this video or clicking the Give link below. But for right now, prepare your heart for amazing worship and an incredible message. The same God that never fails would not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. Working all things out. Sing, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley.
church? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Andrew Irwin, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the Vine Church. And I'm fired up to be with you today as we kick off a brand new message series called Losing My Religion. And I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many of you, when you hear the words Losing My Religion, are transported back to 1991 when the hit song from REM was number four on the Billboard Hot 100 charts? Okay, that's a lot of hands. That's a lot of hands. I'm, I'm also curious, um, how many of you weren't alive in 1991 by show of hands? Okay, that's what I figured. There was a lot of y'all in that category as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you like a, just a taste of the song that I was talking about. All right, check this out. Was just a dream. And the next line is, yeah, that was awesome. I love it, love it, love it. Man, that's good stuff. So for those of you who are in that category where you weren't yet alive back in 1991, it was crazy because MTV still showed music videos. Can you believe that? It was a whole thing. And those really were simpler times. I mean, that's back when gas was $1.12. If you needed, if you need... If you needed somebody to know your name, you could still go to Cheers and hang with Norm and the guys. And it was a good time because, you know, like the Cold War was finally thawed out and the USSR dissolved, right? I mean, this was a good time to be alive. Now, what's interesting is for me, like my first thought when I hear the words losing my religion is those moments where I have been on the brink of acting like a person who's never before heard the name of Jesus. You ever had one of those moments where you're about to lose your religion? Yes, for me, um, I don't know about you, but I I don't do well in traffic, like, at all. And and last summer, I was having one of those mornings where, like, we had to get out the door at a certain time in order to get all the kids to the right places at the right times. And the morning went awful. Like, everything that we needed to get done at a certain time, we missed. Like, we blew through every single deadline. Like, we didn't get to anything that we were supposed to get to. But, and we finally got everybody loaded up in the car. I think like I was throwing cold waffles back at the kids. I mean, it was one of those kind of mornings. And, and I looked at the clock and realized, if, if we hit all green lights and there's nobody in front of us, there is still a chance that we can get there on time. And so like, I'm like, I pull out of the neighborhood, I'm like cruising along 211. 
and wouldn't you know it, out in front of me pulls a tractor. Not a tractor trailer, a literal tractor. <laughs> pulls out in front of me and is driving down to 11. In case you were curious, I missed every one of those appointments that I was trying to get to on time because it just didn't work out. And, and the only thing that was keeping me from losing my religion right then and there in that car was the fact that I had a Vine sticker on the back of my vehicle. <laughs> so if you do not have a Vine sticker on the back of your car, you can stop by guest services and pick one of those up for free. It might just help you avoid losing your religion. And while that's kind of a humorous example, I think we can all think of times where we've heard, where we've either experienced or we've heard from people who have been real close to losing their religion or are just walking away from their faith altogether because of the hard circumstances that they found themselves in. You know what I'm talking about, like when they found out they were sick or that their family members were sick, or maybe that was the day they got the pink slip or the day the divorce papers came in the mail. And the problem with, the, with those moments is it's so easy for us to feel like our religion is just slipping through our fingers because we have this mindset that if we follow the rules and do what we're supposed to do, then God's supposed to do certain things on his end. So it feels like, like we're keeping up with our end of things and God's not keeping up with his. Like we go to church, we serve, we even volunteer with the youth and that should be like a bad news shield, right? Like when you, when you do certain things, like God should take care of you and protect you, right? Like we, we go to Bible study, we're in connect group, we give to the church and yet here we are in the midst of the mess. And we can reach a point where it just feels like we're just gonna walk away from all of it. To be honest with you, last night, um, I, I was in my prayer closet preparing for this morning and, and I was really distracted. And it's because I, I just heard the reports of what had happened in El Paso, Texas. And I found myself just consistently praying for the families of those people who had been murdered in cold blood. And I specifically found myself thinking about and praying for the families, like the parents of the, of the teenagers who were killed. Because I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine as a parent trying to process that somebody hated my children enough to take their life because of their skin color and where they were born. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. Like that, that for me as a parent might be enough for me to go, you know what, I'm done, hit the ripcord, I'm losing my religion, I'm walking away from my faith. And my prayer for those parents and really everybody involved in that situation in El Paso. And then I woke up this morning and heard about the situation in Dayton, Ohio, where there was two mass shootings in a 24 hour span. And I've been praying for all those families. My prayer has been the same. It's that somehow those people involved and affected wouldn't lose their religion. They wouldn't choose to pull back from God, that they would actually press in to God and that they would discover that God hasn't abandon them. God hasn't forgotten them. In fact, God is right there by their side in this very season of challenge. But it's hard, isn't it? Because when, when these circumstances hit us, our, our immediate reaction is to go, you know what? I'm going to walk away. In fact, there's a lot of things in our world today that can cause us to feel like we just need to walk away, lose our religion, be done with it all. 
That's why in this series, we're going to be talking about one thing each week that, that we do to ourselves to end up losing our religion. And this morning, what we're going to talk about is our tendency to blame God. And listen, for those families impacted by what took place in El Paso and Dayton, I don't think any of us would fault them a little bit if they blamed God. But listen, here's what we're going to discover. When we're blaming God, we blind ourselves to the blessings of God. When we blame God, we blind ourselves to the blessings of God. And we're actually gonna see that in our scripture passage for today. And so if you brought your Bibles or have a Bible app, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. That's John 10, and we're gonna be looking at verses seven through 11. And as you're turning there, I wanna give you just a little context because this passage won't really come to life for you if you don't know what happened before it. So in John chapter nine, Jesus, who by the way is fully God, fully man, he is like God in the flesh and he's all powerful. And so he comes across a man who was born blind and being God in the flesh, he decides he's gonna heal him. But he heals him in a way that like my seven-year-old son would have come up with, right? Like Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, rubs the mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go jump in a pool. Okay, let's just back up for a second. This man is blind. So he's, he's having a conversation with Jesus. So he hears Jesus and think about the sound effects that come along with this scene. And Jesus is standing in front of him here. Spit. And then you don't know what's coming. You don't know what Jesus is doing. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to put something on your eyes. It's just pop, right? Like you're standing there and all of a sudden your face is caked with mud and then you're told to go take a swim, which by the way, would have been a challenge for someone who couldn't see. And yet the man does it. He goes and he takes a dip in the pool of Siloam and then he can see. Now you, you would think that this would have been a source of like massive community celebration. Like you would have thought everybody in the entire like community would have been like, yes, look, this man who was blind now can see. But there was a group of people, religious people, who were not too pleased about this scene. It's the group known as the Pharisees. And the reason the Pharisees are not too pleased on this is that their understanding of religion is that it's all about rules. For them, religion equals rules. And in fact, if they follow the rules well enough, they believe that they'll eventually get to God. And they believe that Jesus has just broken one of the rules because they, Jesus had the audacity not to spit on the ground, make mud and plop it in the guy's eyes. He had the audacity to do all that on the Sabbath. And Sabbath is a day you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And they believe that Jesus has violated that. And so here's what they do. They go and have some confrontational conversations. They, they start with the man who once was blind, now could see. And they, they basically confront him. And when they don't get the answers they're looking for from him, they go to the man's parents, which would have been like a really uncomfortable conversation. Like, so the religious leaders approach this man's parents. These parents have raised a child who was blind his entire life, not an easy thing to do. And these Pharisees come to the parents and say, hey, have you guys just been playing like a joke on everybody in the community and like told your son to act like he was blind for his entire life all the time, forever in front of everybody? Like that would have been a really awkward conversation to have and yet they have it anyway. 
And then when they don't get the answers they're looking for from mom and dad, they then go to Jesus and they once again confront him. And in every single confrontational conversation, they have the exact same posture. And it's one that looks like this. They have their finger pointed out in blame. And here's the problem with that. When you have your finger pointed out in blame, you've got no room to receive a blessing. And what we're gonna see in our passage for today is that when we fail to receive the blessings that God wants to give us, there's a thief who's all too willing to come and steal them, kill them, and destroy them. And we're gonna see that in our scripture for today. So let's pick up reading with John chapter 10, verse seven. It says this. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but I love this passage of scripture. And when I read it, the first thing that always jumps out at me is what Jesus says in verse seven. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in our kind of modern context. But if you were, 2000, if you were to go back in time 2000 years and, and head over to the Middle East, you'd see people living basically an agricultural lifestyle. And so they would have had an understanding of how sheep were tended. So we need to understand that same understanding in order to grasp this passage. So in that context, the shepherd would often keep their sheep in a pen located near the village. That way they could have all of the resources of home. But in the warm season they would often lead their sheep out of the pen and head out into the hillside. And while they were out on the hillside grazing, they would often make the decision not to make the long trek back into the village. They would instead herd the sheep into what is called a sheepfold. And a sheepfold is basically a, a long kind of wall that doesn't have um, a door, but an opening to it. In fact, to get the picture, you got to kind of look at this. And so what the shepherd would do is basically stand in that opening and lead the sheep in there and count them one by one to make sure that they hadn't lost a single sheep. And once they got all of the sheep into the sheepfold, they would actually lay down in that opening there so that their body became the door. They were quite literally the door of the sheep. Now, what's remarkable about this is that Jesus being the master communicator, he's not really talking about sheep and doors, is he? He's actually talking about himself and his followers. He's basically saying that if anyone wants to get to God, they've got to go through him. Now, for those of you who've been in church or maybe you've been around the vine for a while, like this is not new information to you. In fact, this is a kingdom truth that we talk about on a regular basis around here that nobody gets to the father except through the son. And the reason we know that is because four chapters later, Jesus actually says that in John chapter 14, verse six. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So that's not what makes this passage so compelling. What makes this passage just so fascinating and so intriguing on so many levels is what Jesus says next. Check out these words from Jesus. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, what Jesus is getting at is the only way a person can get to God the Father is not through rules, it's through relationship with him. But every other person who's come before him says that the way to get to God is through what? 
rules and regulations. Jesus is basically saying that anybody who's been teaching you your whole life, that rules is what's going to get you to God, they've been wrong. And you know who would have been standing right there to hear Jesus say this? The Pharisees, the very people that Jesus calls a thief and a robber are standing right there as he says this. They would have heard the words come out of Jesus's mouth that they are thieves and robbers. And you gotta keep in mind, these are the ultra religious people and they've just been called thieves and robbers. And you know why they're thieves and robbers? Because Jesus has just told us that rules will never get us to the father. It's only a relationship. And the Pharisees refused to have a relationship with Jesus. They refused to let go of their rules in order to accept a relationship. It's much like the girl from the, the graphic that we've shown or the video we showed before this. Refusing to let go of the balloon. They just will not do it. They love their rules. And so they've got a death grip around them. And Jesus is saying, listen, listen. Anybody who says rules are the way to the Father are missing the point. And not only are they missing the point, they're actually thieves and robbers because they're not trying to come in the opening that I have made available. They're actually trying to steal their way in. And the problem is, problem is, Jesus is a really good shepherd. He's a really good shepherd. Now, here's what I find really, really interesting about this passage. So Jesus says that, the, that these Pharisees are thieves and robbers because they won't let go of their rules. And then he makes a pivot. He makes a pivot in John chapter 10, verse 10. This is what he says. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Hold on. Jesus has just said thieves and robbers, as in plural. He's now talking about one thief. And historically, that thief has been understood to be the enemy of God or Satan. And so what Jesus has done in one fail swoop is say, hey, the ultra-religious in our community, they don't belong. They don't belong to me. And not only that, they're more closely aligned with the enemy than they are with me. Now, if you're a Pharisee hearing this, this would have been infuriating. Like this would have been like just absolutely maddening because this nobody rabbi from the nobody town of Nazareth has showed up on the scene and he's telling you, the person who's followed all the rules your entire life, that you don't belong to God. And in fact, you're more closely aligned with Satan than you are to God. And it might sound really harsh for Jesus to do this. Like why would Jesus be so like cruel to these Pharisees? It's because he wants them to understand that their way of life is a life that leads to nowhere. He wants them to understand that they can follow all the rules that they want and it's never going to get them to God. He loves them so much that he's willing to speak the hard truth into their lives that rules end in nowhere, but relationship ends in the kingdom. And he wants them to grasp that so badly that he's willing to try to have some shock value as he speaks, not just about them, but to them. See, he's basically saying, that all the rules that you followed all your life have been trumped in this one moment by a relationship with me. Now, th this is like so interesting to us. Like it, it, we've got to grasp this because what Jesus is basically inviting us into is a relationship where we get to be a part of his sheepfold. And he says that it's an abundant life when we step into his sheepfold. 
the thing that I, I wrestle with a lot as a follower of Jesus, and you might as well, is what that abundant life looks like. Because there's days when things don't go my way and I think, where's the abundant life? Like, where is it? Like, there's days when I feel like I, I am somehow missing it. And I don't know if you're like that, but like, sometimes I get hangnails and I go, where's the abundant life? Sometimes I'll pick a hangnail at a red light and I go, really, where's the, like, where's the abundant life? Like, if you really were giving me abundance, man, I wouldn't be sitting here flicking this thing as I'm waiting to drive my car. Like, I, I wanna know where the abundance is. And the problem is, we so easily confuse the abundant life with the easy life. When Jesus never once promises us the easy life, in fact, what makes our life abundant is the fact that Jesus promises to be with us in it, no matter where it takes us. That's where the abundance comes from. It's not the ease of things that we can handle all on our own. It's that when we can't handle any of it on our own, he's going to be there. He is the source of our abundant life because he is the good shepherd. That's why he moves on in verse 11 to say this. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Man, I, I love that passage because we get really hung up on why we don't have the abundant life because we go, you know what, Jesus? I'm a follower of yours. Where's the abundant life that you're leading me into? And I look at people who have that mindset and I go, have you not read the book? Because if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, you know, you know where it leads. Following Jesus always leads to the cross. Jesus, Jesus lived a sinless life, which means he didn't do anything wrong. And yet he died a sinner's death on a cross. And so if we assume that we're going to have the abundant life and it's gonna be easy, then we have wildly missed the mark. And I think because we've been operating under this assumption, we've become like experts at blaming God we just have gotten really good at it. Anything that doesn't go our way, we blame God for. And I want you to hear this. Like that crisis that you're dealing with right now, that car crash that, that happened, that career setback that you're walking through right now, God didn't cause that. God wasn't intentionally trying to inflict pain on you, but he does care about it. God's not the cause of it, but he does care about it. In fact, he cares so much that he promises that he'll be with you. And he promises that that thing that's happened to you will never define you, ever. And when you understand those truths, it's a game changer for you. It can absolutely change your perspective on everything that you say and everything you do. But this is hard for us to get through. In fact, in fact, when we even begin to, to wrap our minds around the fact that God's not the, the cause of all of our crises, you know what we get really good at doing? All right, fine, I won't blame God anymore. I'll blame the thief, right? Jesus said there was a thief coming. I'm going to blame him. And you know who's really, really good at that? Parents of teenagers. Yep. When I was in student ministry, I would have parents who would bring their sweet baby boy or baby girl into my office and they would look at me and they'd say, pastor, I need you to fix my kid because the thief has come to steal, kill and destroy their innocence. The thief has influenced them to sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> it's, it's the thief at work in their life. 
Listen, my response to them would always be the same. Hey, tell me about the last time you guys worshiped together as a family. Tell me about the last time you guys prayed together. Not just at meals. Last time you prayed together. You served together. You studied scripture together. And they would go stone cold silent. And then they would come back with, but it's the thief. It's the thief. It's the thief who's influencing him. Listen, this is what I would say. I don't know whether or not the thief is influencing your baby girl or baby boy. Here's what I do know. You're not because you have abdicated your responsibility as their primary, your, their defined, designed disciple maker. You've stepped out of the role that you were created to play and you've left them vulnerable for any thief, whether it's the thief or not, to come alongside them and steal, kill, and destroy. And we've got to decide, we've got to decide that we're done pointing the finger and blame. Because you know what happens? Blame actually becomes the barrier for our breakthrough. Whatever it is that you want to see God do, whatever move of God you want to see, it's never going to come until you stop blaming him. You can't blame God and expect God to break through the barriers that you built in your life. That thing that you need God to do, you're not going to get it when you're doing this. It's only going to come when you do this. And when you have a heart that says, when I do this, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna receive blessings from God. I'm gonna pass them on to somebody else. And listen, when you start doing that, you've come to a place where you can recognize for yourself that you weren't created to live a life of blame. You were created for a a life of abundant blessing, but you're never gonna receive those blessings like this. Gotta turn that hand to be just like this. And when you do, everything can change for you. Now, you might be going, well, what, what does that practically speaking look like? I, well, I think Jesus is like the, the quintessential case study, right? We've already said that he lived a sinless life and yet still died on a cross, right? Well, if there was anybody, if there was anybody who could have justified blaming, it would have been him. Like he literally did nothing wrong and then still had nails driven through his arms and his feet. So you'd go, well, he he could have blamed a whole lot of people, right? What does he do instead? What does he do when he's been nailed to a cross? He says that the people around him have been forgiven. Why? Because he's not interested in the blame game. He wants to extend a blessing. Makes all the difference in the world. But you go, oh yeah, well, well, that's Jesus, okay? That's Jesus. Can you give me a practical example? Sure. There's a guy in our church named Bill. And let me say up front, I, I love Bill. Like, he's awesome. Bill, um, from the entire time I've been here at the Vine for the last four years, has been in and out of the hospital. In fact, he, he's been in the hospital more than anybody else that I'm aware of in the time that I've been here. And, and it's all stemming from the fact that he was a, a veteran who fought bravely and courageously for our country. And during the course of his service, ended up being exposed to Agent Orange and it wreaked havoc on his body. In fact, he's gone through more procedures, or as he likes to call it, been poked and prodded more than anybody else I know. And and the the current treatment that the doctors have him on right now is is hyperbaric chamber treatment. And so basically what that means is like four to five times a, a week, he has to lay down on his back in this tight, like confined chamber and not move for four hours at a time. 
Here's what I can tell you. If I was enduring that kind of treatment, that would be a chamber of blame. Like that, that would be my chamber of blame right there. Like I, I would be blaming God. I'd be blaming the thief. I'd be blaming everybody, right? Like everybody who came to mind would get a little piece of the blame pie that I was dishing out, right? That, that's how it would be for me. That's not how it is for Bill. Bill views that as his chamber of blessing. And while he's in there, he thanks the Lord for the Lord's provision and protection and faithfulness to him and his family. He uses it as an opportunity to say, thank you for all that the Lord has done in his life. And every conversation I have with Bill, he always wraps up in almost the exact same way. And pastor, I'm praying this is the Sunday that I get to come back to church. Why? Because he wants to come and bless the Lord. Listen, I don't know the circumstance that you're walking through right now. I don't know what's happening in your life in this season, but here's my prayer for you, that you would make today the the day that you decide that you're done blaming and you're ready to start blessing. I pray that that would be true for you today. In fact, for some of you, you've been holding on to blame that you've had for years and you're right to do so. Listen, listen, you're in the right. You've got all the reason in the world to blame for what those people did to you. That blame is eventually gonna burn a hole in your heart if it hasn't already. Because blame doesn't affect anybody but you. Make today the day that you decide that you're done playing the blame game. Because if you do that, you're inviting the Lord to have that breakthrough moment that you've been praying for, for all these years. And it can happen today with a simple, with a simple shift from this to this. And if you're here this morning and you're going, whoa, 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 I can't imagine, I can't imagine not being angry anymore. I can't imagine not holding them responsible anymore. Pastor, if you knew how much blame I had, I'm not saying you don't have that much blame. Here's what I am saying. You also have the opportunity to have that much forgiveness poured into your life. And you also have that much opportunity to have blessing poured into your life. But some of you are so filled with with just blame for others that there is no room for blessing in your life. And I think that's largely because you've never before received the free blessing that is the relationship with God that you were actually made for. Do you know what blame is a byproduct of? It's a byproduct of thinking that life is about rules. And somebody violated a rule and you can hold them responsible. Listen, make today the day that you decide that you're gonna let go of that balloon that says religion is about rules. Because it's not. And when you let go of that balloon, you can then extend your hand and receive the relationship that you were made for. In fact, you have the opportunity to step into that relationship right now. For I spoke a word you were singing over me You have been so, so good 
to me For I took a breath You breathe your life in me You have been so, so kind to me Couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. Till you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. Yeah, yeah. your foe, still your love fought for me, yes indeed, you have been so, so good to me, when I felt no worth, when I felt no worth, you paid it all for me, you have been so, so Sing that out, church. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down. 